0: So, welcome to the fifth in our series of COVID-19 podcasts. The topic of this podcast is COVID-19 and the search for a vaccine. I'm delighted to be joined by one of my heroes, Dr. Peter Hotez. Peter is a scientist, a paediatrician and an advocate in global health, vaccinology and neglected tropical diseases. He's founding dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine and director of Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development. That's just a snapshot of his many accomplishments and the work that he does. Added to that, Peter's one of America's leading scientists in terms of vaccines and oversees a team of researchers that are working on not one, but two COVID-19 vaccines. Peter, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today?
1: I'm good, thank you. It's uh, so good to see you again, Eva, uh, even if it's virtually.
0: Right. Liverpool feels like a long time ago.
1: It really does. It really does. Uh, back, that was pre, pre-apocalypse. Right,
0: um, absolutely. Um, the US has been particularly hard hit. Um, how are your colleagues in healthcare coping with the COVID-19 pandemic?
1: No, I think it varies on what part of the country that you're in. I have a lot of uh, former medical students who are now residents, uh, resident physicians, uh, house staff, as we call them, and uh, junior faculty at the various medical centers in New York, and it's very tough. You know, they're just overwhelmed with sick patients. It's starting to go down now, but it's been really challenging and very stressful here in. Texas, we haven't got hit quite as hard because we enacted social distancing when we saw what was happening in New York. So it wasn't as as difficult. But the, unfortunately, the, the other thing that's happened is a lot of the hospitals have taken a huge financial hit because they've had to empty out the hospital for everyone except COVID-19 patients and uh, these and all, a lot of the elective surgeries have stopped, so all the usual revenue-generating mechanisms for hospitals that operated thin margins anyway uh, have have been affected, and so we're seeing huge financial losses in the academic medical centers. I think I've heard Duke Medical, uh, the Mayo Clinic, which is one of the finest in our country, has lost something like a billion dollars because of this. So. This will have long-term effects, I think, on on uh, medical training in the US and scientific training in the US. So there, there's going to be a lot of interesting collateral uh, effects of, of this epidemic that we're only now beginning to realize.
0: Yeah, sure so i mean we'll um hopefully towards the end we'll we'll turn to maybe some of the positive things that could maybe come out of this but um and of course i think we forget in the uk that you have a very different health system over in the us um but you and your team at the moment are working on a vaccine or vaccines for covid19 can you tell us a little bit more about that
1: sure we've um had a program for the last 20 years uh, developing Vaccines for poverty related neglected diseases. Uh, it's a center that you know aspires to be something like the G- Jenner Institute at Oxford University, but we're much smaller, an academic-based academic-based-based product development partnership that develops neglected disease vaccines. Uh, and that includes, we've had a coronavirus vaccine program for the last decade. Uh, trying to develop recombinant protein coronavirus vaccines which up until a few months ago nobody cared about <laughs> and then all of a sudden the world seems to have changed a bit and suddenly they've become more interested so we have two vaccines that we're we've we're developing that we're trying to move into clinical trials one which is ready to go for uh clinical trials hopefully later in this year and uh and then one to follow on that it's a more traditional technology than uh, some of the others, it's the same technology that's used to make the recombinant protein hepatitis B vaccine that's, uh, that's used all around the world. And one of the advantages, is that because it's a low-cost technology and one that is made, lo- a, t- a technology like hepatitis B that's done locally, made locally, produced locally in India, Brazil, elsewhere, we think this is well-suited to become a global health vaccine. Uh, so we're quite excited and that's all, all of our vaccines are made as affordable low-cost global health vaccines And maybe this will be uh, one of them as well because we're quite concerned about this virus now It's already moving into Brazil and Ecuador causing a lot of damage in the crowded urban favelas the urban slums of uh, many of these cities and we're worried about what happens later in the year. So, if and when it goes into India and Bangladesh and Africa, who's going to make that vaccine? So we hope we, we can position ourselves to make a contribution on that front
0: oh, right that, that's so important. I think um, we've become so much more aware of uh, people who are often working behind the scenes um, on, on you know in science and in, in research. Um, than we ever have been before. Um, so what does your daily day look like? What's your daily routine consist of?
1: Well, we have a group of scientists that are in the labs now. All, of, all the labs have been closed for a couple of months due to COVID-19 with the exception of those that are working on COVID-19 technologies. And ours is one of them in our Texas Medical Center. So we have had a group of scientists in the lab. I've tried to avoid a lot of people contacts because I am over the age of 60 and trying to... Do no, I don't believe distancing. it. Oh yeah, it's uh, 62 this uh, May and so trying to you know keep that social distancing. Uh, so that means I'm pretty much doing this all from home uh, through Zoom and Skype and so here with with my wife Anne and my special needs adult daughter Rachel and we've spoken about Rachel in the past because of the whole uh fighting the anti-vaccine movement in the book vaccines did not cause rachel uh, rachel's autism so rachel's with us and the cat's with us and my other adult kids are scattered about the country but uh so it's that's been a little bit lonely not seeing the other adult kids so basically my morning is i wake up really early on mostly on teleconferences zoom calls non-stop because we're trying to move this vaccine into clinical trials we We've just embarked on a new partnership with PATH, P-A-T-H, which is important because they led the, de- the development of the meningococcal A vaccine for Africa, and um, the um, malaria vaccine. Uh, so now we have this partnership for a global health vaccine. So a lot of calls with them and with you know the groups that will be helping us with the clinical trials, etc. And then you know we still have to raise money for it also. So uh, it's, you, you wouldn't think in this terrible time I'd still be struggling to raise money for a COVID-19 vaccine, but we're doing that. When, so it's a combination of federal support and private support and really interesting sources of private support. My, my favorite one is uh, Tito's Vodka has given us $1 million. So the important wow. take is whenever uh, your listeners or viewers order a vodka drink, make, they Need to make certain it's with Tito's vodka. Um, oh, amazing!
0: Maybe someone else is. Maybe someone that, else listening to this and, who can help.
1: Right, that would be great. Uh, and uh, and and then, you know, we're we're speaking to the speaking to the world. I've had this privileged opportunity to be on CNN, and uh, Fox News, and uh, MSNBC, our three big cable networks, and that's been really interesting because they're in the US, they're quite politically polarized. you know. They're either uh, sort of, uh, uh, they, they, they tend to be at, at the political uh, ends of the spectrum. So f- figuring out how to thread that needle and stay close to the science and being on all three of those cable news networks, that's been really interesting also. And I, I, it's a great opportunity and a great lesson in science communication, how you avoid the pitfalls of getting going down a rabbit hole of of political discourse because everything is so uh, polarized right now in the US, especially because we have our uh, US presidential election coming up in the fall. And um, and so the rhetoric is just at an all time high. And um, so a difficult time for the country. It'd be a difficult time for the country even without COVID-19. But this layered on top of it is, creates complexity upon complexity.
0: Right. Well, look, you've spent a large part of your career developing vaccines for diseases. What What do you think are the biggest challenges that you're facing with developing a vaccine for COVID-19 other than, you know, the finance?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the actual uh, scientific challenge of making a COVID-19 vaccine is, is actually not that daunting. Uh, this is a relatively straightforward... Uh, Uh, Carl Zimmer in the New York Times wrote that uh, this is a clumsy virus and in the sense that it's not very clever in terms of antigenic shifts and antigenic variations. It's a relatively straightforward problem of inducing an immune response to the spike protein of the virus. If you ever looked at what this cartoon of what the virus looks like, it's a donut with a piece of RNA stuck in the middle and then there's uh, these spike proteins all around it. You need to an immune response against the spike protein to neutralize it, that is prevent it from binding to the host receptor. So it's a pretty classic problem in virology uh, and it's a matter of inducing the immunity. So it's a matter of what's the best way to do it. We, we're taking a recombinant protein vaccine approach. My, my colleague Adrian Hill at, at, and his team at Jenner Institute is using an adenovirus-based vector platform. Then there's RNA vaccines and DNA vaccines and, and activated virus vaccines. And and it's likely that multiple technologies will ultimately work after tweaking it a bit. The problem is it's trying to do this in the middle of a pandemic is, is tough because you need time. You need time to optimize the vaccine. You need time to show that it actually works in human trials. Uh, that, it, that it's effective in preventing uh, the, in preventing people from getting sick, and also that it's safe and doesn't give you any untoward safety signal. And it's, that's the hard part to rush. And you know, so we think it'll take about a year once phase three clinical trial starts sometime over the summer for the first vaccine in the US. So we're probably looking at you know, the, towards the end of next year, 2021 at the earliest, before the vaccine will be rolled out uh, in order to give that adequate time for for safety and efficacy.
0: Right. I mean, uh, so a lot of people who will be listening to this are professional scientists, researchers, but a lot of people will be lay people as well. And it might be useful to just give a really kind of brief overview of what the process is for developing a vaccine we've got the science and as you say we've got the the human um clinical trials which presumably come up you obviously come after um, animal model trials um what what does that look like in brief that that process
1: well, well you know we're in a little bit different position because we've had a coronavirus program for the last decade and we learned over that time that it's it is indeed the spike protein that needs to be targeted. And so we've been uh, doing uh, quite a lot of experimental studies in uh, lab animals, mostly in in a mouse model of coronavirus infections, a transgenic mouse model with that's been, that we have the human ACE2 receptor uh, in there. And we've uh, really experimented around with a number of different constructs of our vaccine to identify one that gives the maximal protection and the one that uh, seems to be the safest and not causing this any kind of what we sometimes refer to as immune enhancement or immunopathology where you can make things worse sometimes. And and over that time, we've been able to identify a, a candidate which is a genetically engineered recombinant protein. And then we've invested a lot of time, a couple of years in scaling it up to make certain that we can reproduce that process for manufacturing. Uh, and then it's from there, once you have a vaccine that you're enthusiastic about, you work with a team that can help you file what's called an IND, an Investigational New Drug Application, to the regulators. In our case, in the United States, it's the U.S. Food and Drug Administration preparing those dossiers, which, are, uh, which is a big stack of paper uh, that, uh, you know, explains every step of the process that you've used in making it Uh, all of your lab animal data uh, put into a certain form uh, where you can trace the origin of all the experiments and all the reagents used and then once that goes to the regulators they have it for a period of time and sometimes they the the way it works in the US is the default plan is if you don't hear from them you're good to go you start the clinical trials But they have, they reserve the right if they see something that they're uncertain about to put you on clinical hold to either answer additional questions or request additional experiments. And then you start moving into what are called phase one trials for healthy adult volunteers to uh, inject them with the vaccine and making certain that nothing untoward happens at that point. If that looks good, you do some expanded safety studies and. Different populations, and then you start getting a sense if you're doing it in an area where transmission is underway, whether those you're vaccinating seem to not be getting the infection like the control your control population, and if then all those things look good, uh, you do what's the the ultimate is what's called a pivotal phase three study which which expands for safety, but then you're, those are the big studies that would lead to licensure of The vaccine. So, um, and that's the one that takes the longest because it's the largest trial, you know, often requires 10,000, 20,000 patients enrolled. The rotavirus phase three trial took 70,000, so all different sizes. They've grown quite large. Probably in the US, we'll do, they're looking at 25,000 patients, maybe divided into placebo versus those that get the vaccine. And then and that takes time, and so through that process, we'll know which, which of these vaccines is both efficacious and safe. And, and likely there'll be multiple vaccines that meet, meet that profile, and, and that may be important because if you're trying to manufacture for a country as large as the United States, that's hundreds of millions of doses, and maybe not any single technology can do that. And then you're talking about they're making it globally. And you're talking about a adult, there's 4.4 billion adults in the world. And that's a big, that's a lot of vaccines. So having the capacity to scale that up, that's gonna be a huge challenge for the World Health Organization and uh, the Gavi Alliance and others.
0: Right. So how do you think that that um, that, that manufacturing challenge um, sits with, I think you, you, you talked earlier about maybe having a vaccine available by the end of 2021. Um, do you think that that, uh, I mean, are you saying that you think that the vaccine will be ready but that we might not have enough uh, to um, inoculate everybody that needs to be inoculated? Yeah, that,
1: that, that's a potential problem, although now in the U.S. plan uh, there's quite an elaborate Manufacturing infrastructure being developed. And the way Dr. Anthony Fauci in the US describes it, it's called manufacturing at risk, meaning that we're we're going to do something unprecedented in the US, which is to scale up manufacture of several different vaccines even before we know they work or they're safe. Right. With with the understanding that there may be a problem, in which case we're going to throw all those vaccine doses away. Right. Um, the worry, of course, is you can say that, but my worry is that once these vaccines are manufactured at scale, they become, as the expression we use in the U.S., is too big to fail, meaning that uh, they, uh, you know, it's very hard to walk away from that. And so there's going to be unusual pressures, I think, and, and this is also creating a lot of Issues around what's happening with the anti-vaccine movement, which is quite strong in the United States and has gotten reorganized, Um, like like so many ideas, uh, where the idea came out of the UK, but then the Americans produced it. It's that did it at scale. Same thing Are you the,
0: blaming us, Peter? Same Are with the anti-vaccine
1: <laughs> movement. You guys, you guys started it, but we managed to we managed to figure out a way to blow it up beyond all proportions. Um, well, and,
0: I'm going uh, to I'm going to come that at the uh, well, but the
1: but this is but this is a real problem as well that we have now in the U.S. is um, right big anti-vaccine movement, uh, especially here in Texas.
0: Right. I'm going to come on Uh, to that, Peter. But but what would your advice be to people until the vaccine is distributed? And do you think that we can expect a second wave of COVID-19 in the autumn of 2020?
1: I think we we could potentially be looking at multiple waves. So uh, the Harvard epidemiology group. uh, I haven't looked at the imperial. I know there's a big group at Imperial College that's been looking at this also, but. I have to look at what they've done, but the Harvard group has shown uh, uh, repeated waves uh, every winter, uh, January, February. Uh, so I think you know that's a possibility. You know, not, none of the models are terribly robust because they're only as good as the assumptions. The, this is a brand new virus, so it's hard to really give very precise assumptions. assumptions. But uh, another wave is. believe just going to begin in January and then, but my concern now is we're relaxing social distancing already ahead of when the models say we should be doing it. So I think we could see an intermediate wave over the summer and fall. I think that's a real possibility as well.
0: Okay. Well, you you touched upon, um, I've got a couple more questions for you. Um, you touched upon uh, some of the groups who don't support um vaccination now we originally became connected over my love of your wonderful book which you mentioned earlier which was vaccines did not cause rachel's autism and i can actually see a copy of it just sat behind you there
1: all right yeah
0: right yeah um, i had a
1: resurrected because of uh this this 19 is actually you know it's sort of counterintuitive you would think right with everyone clamoring for a COVID-19 vaccine, you'd think this would force the anti-vaxxers into retreat, but in fact, uh, they're very clever. They've figured out a way to use it to re-energize their movement, and part, you know, we've fed into that because uh, some of the terrible language that uh, that's being used about, and now the U.S. program is called Operation Warp Speed, which is a disaster because, you know, the you know, if you look at what the, the major tenets of the anti-vaccine movement, it's, it's one, that vaccines cause autism, and we've talked about this before, and I've spent years trying to refute that and Wrote the book, because I have a daughter with autism, and why that, there is no link between vaccines and autism. But then they say vaccines are rushed, uh, they're not adequately tested for safety, and there's a cozy relationship between the pharma industry and the, and, and the government, the U.S. government. So this, the way the language is being rolled out in the U.S., for call, they're calling it Operation Warp Speed, it's really created a nightmare scenario where the anti-vaccine movement is now completely re-energized. And we've we've created version 2.0. Uh, and um, and now they're going after Dr. Fauci and Bill Gates. And, and I have a new title now. This is, uh, they now refer to me as the og villain and apparently it's a rap album uh that og refers to the original gangster so i am the no. so i am the original gangster villain villain so i have that going for me so oh
0: uh, and uh,
1: but, so we're in for some tough times unfortunately and to the point where uh now I'm, there are some surveys coming out to say that even once the COVID vaccine is available or vaccines are available, a significant number of Americans will refuse to take it. Right. And now we're working on a uh, vaccine modeling exercise with a group that was at Johns Hopkins, now they've moved to City University of New York to the where we think there's a possibility that so many Americans may opt out of the COVID-19 vaccine because of this awful movement that we will not be able to achieve herd immunity with the vaccine. So the vaccine won't even work because of the anti-vaccine movement. So I've been pushing very hard on the White House and National Institutes of Health to say, guys, we need to come up with a, a message here and a communications plan. Otherwise, this is gonna go very badly.
0: Right. We we know that there's a faction. We know that there's a minority of people who are very vocal. For those people that are sat on the fence, what you know in terms of vaccination, um, you know, let's be positive. Let's use this as an opportunity to educate people. You know, where can people go? What should they do for more information to make an informed decision?
1: Well, um, there are a number of different organisations that have put out. Uh, material. Uh, there's, of course, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, side, Public Health England has a, a, P, has a lot of good uh, information. There's vaccines.gov in the U.S. There's uh, several of the private organizations. Uh, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia has a vaccine education center. There's vaccinate your family. Uh, there, there, there's a few of them. But we also feel that just putting out positive messages may not be adequate. And now, uh, Richard Horton from The Lancet has charged us with creating a vaccine commission uh, for vaccine hesitancy in the US. And I'm now heading that uh, with Saad Omer, uh, who heads the Global Health Institute at Yale. And we have a really good group uh, here in in the US to address this. Chelsea Clinton has joined on with this. so to really do a deep dive and figuring out how we can counter this and in, in an innovative and interesting ways, not just the usual things of refining our message. I think we have to be more proactive than that because the anti-vaccine movement is just uh, is just continues to grow in strength. So that we're in a situation now where it's not so much that parents or so many individuals are anti-vax per se. It's just that when they are downloading any information about vaccines they're more likely to download misinformation because of how pervasive the anti-vaccine movement is. And so now the new normal is not to vaccinate your children. Uh, And on top of that we have the situation where the mis-messaging coming out of the pharma companies and the biotechs over COVID-19 vaccines, the operation warp speed metaphor which is a disaster, and then we also have the fact that uh, we just got some new numbers out from the Centers for Disease Control, and they have found that once we started emergency orders and for social distancing, of course parents stopped bringing their children into the pediatrician so we we now have had historic declines in measles vaccination coverage, so I'm quite worried about measles resurfacing very soon so this is this is going to be a mess, yeah.
0: So that's a lot of serious messages and a lot of serious information. Right. Um, we're coming to the end of our podcast with you. I know you're a very busy man. Um, are there any positives um, as we finish this up? Are there any positives that we can take from our overall scientific response to COVID-19?
1: I think there's a few positive things. Um, I think one, uh, healthcare professionals are on people's minds like they've never been before. I think there's a great appreciation for the work of all the nurses and the physicians, the respiratory therapists. Um, I think they've we've always had an appreciation for it, but there's you're seeing sort of this outpouring of love and support for you know, for you know, for people who deserve it. Um, so I think that's great. Even the scientists—we're hearing from scientists more, right? Um, you know, uh, if you turn for the first time in the U.S., you turn on cable news networks like CNN or MSNBC or Fox News, you're hearing from actual scientists. Many for many Americans, that's the first time they've ever heard from us, and you know, and understanding what we do as scientists, what our day is like, and that's why podcasts like this are so important. Uh, um, you know. Hill is now a no, well-known name in the UK, as, as it should be, and as his colleagues should be, or, you know, the other Oxford professors, and, you know, people know about the Wellcome Trust and who Jeremy Farrar is, and uh, and that's the way it should be, and I think that that's a positive message.
0: Mm.
1: I, I, th- I think also um, that um, people are starting to understand what scientists are, and they're real people, and these are the challenges we face. And, and it's not, it's, it's a lot of heartache also, because more things don't work in science than they do work. And knowing what it's like for us to be in lab meetings or revise papers that get rejected or require major revisions or grants that get turned down. It's, it's, it's really important that, uh, that people understand the process that we go through as
0: well. Yeah I agree and I think you're right it's fantastic to see accolades for the people that deserve them especially those people that have been working behind the scenes for decades um, for us um, that get very little recognition uh, in terms of the work that they do to save our lives. Um, Look we've covered an awful lot of questions we're deeply grateful to you for taking the time out of what I know is a hugely busy time for you. On behalf of all of our members, please accept our grateful thanks for all that you do in the fight against COVID-19. We also want to reassure any viewers um, that the Encephalitis Society services remain unaffected during this challenging time. Um, And so if people need support and information, our team remain at your service, please go to encephalitis.info for contact details or to chat online. If you've enjoyed the podcast and can support our work, um, given that we have a 50% uh, drop in income as a result of so many things being cancelled, please visit encephalitis.info forward slash donate. Um, He hasn't asked me to, but I would say if you are interested in vaccines, um, buy Peter's book, Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism. It's a fantastic book. Um, And I thoroughly enjoyed it and I learned so much from it. But most of all, as we draw this podcast to a close, wash your hands and stay safe, everybody.